In a world full of socio-political issues, one man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Welcome, everybody, to Season 2, Episode 12 of You Don't Have to Yell. The podcast for independent and minor party voters looking for political conversation that is neither red nor blue and the home of the independentry. Do you get that? It's a mix between independent and pundit. I've been thinking about it all week. Hope you like it. If you're new here, welcome. And if you know of an independent voter such as yourself who would dig this show, please share it. This podcast grows by word of mouth. Now... Democrats would probably argue that figures like Ted Cruz and Jim Jordan not only disagree with them, but represent a movement looking to erode our democratic freedoms. And Republicans would argue the same thing about people such as Bernie Sanders and AOC. And given both sides feel the other's positions run contrary to the democratic values we hold dear... Why should they be expected to participate in the democratic process with the other? Why shouldn't they seek simply to eliminate or thwart the other side? And this is the question posed by Bob Talese in his new book, Sustaining Democracy, What We Owe to the Other Side. Bob is chair of the philosophy department at Vanderbilt University and has a body of work focused on polarization in American politics. For a little backstory, I would strongly recommend listening to the episode I did with him on February 18th of this year on his last book, Overdoing Democracy. Now, in this conversation, Bob explains the misunderstanding most Americans have about what it means to quote-unquote get along politically and how the best way to preserve strong alliances is to ensure we have strong enemies. That will make sense later in the episode. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. Bob, this is the second time we spoke. First time was a, a fairly friendly, congenial conversation, but I'm really going to give you a nice, hard-hitting question to start things off with. This is going to be a bit of straight talk from Dan Sally, which is, why in 2021... Do we need a book on sustaining democracy? Because everything seems to be going swimmingly right now, wouldn't you say? (laughs) Oh, I see what you mean. Um, Right? (laughs) (laughs) You set them up and I knock them down. Um, That's it. (laughs) So the book Sustaining Democracy is a follow-up or might even say a sequel to um, the book we talked about last time we, we spoke, Dan. So the earlier book was called Overdoing Democracy, Why We Must Put Politics in Its Place. And this book is called Sustaining Democracy, What We Owe to the Other Side. And this book is this book is my attempt to answer a certain kind of question that would often get asked of me when I was talking to various kinds of audience about the Overdoing Democracy book. And the question would be formulated something like this. They'd say... Well, okay, Talese, you've convinced me that in order to perform well as a democratic citizen, I need sometimes to engage in cooperative activities with others in which 
politics isn't suppressed, but just is simply beside the point. That's the thesis of overdoing democracy. They say, okay, you've convinced me. Let's just say that, that, that I'm willing to accept um, the thesis of overdoing democracy. But now, when it is time to do politics, how am I supposed to proceed? Because I hate the other side. <laughs> uh, I, I hate their views. I hate the way they go about expressing their views. I hate the methods that they use to articulate and disseminate their views. So how am I, when it's time to do democratic politics, how is it possible to proceed democratically given the fact that I despise them? Now, one can read a lot of democratic theory and even listen to a lot of politicians, even today, even our president, right? Uh, we can't see each other as enemies. We need to unify, 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 Joe Biden says. You can find a lot of people thinking hard about democracy who are at least implicitly committed to the idea that seeing the other side as in some severe or serious way wrong and for that reason, seeing them as not merely people who have different political priorities, but have the wrong political priorities, it's easy to find people saying, well, once you see the other side as wrong and, and wrong-headed and in the wrong, then democracy is already dysfunctional. And it strikes me that it's just not true. <laughs> you know? It seems to me that part of the package of democracy is a political order in which citizens sometimes, maybe often, regard one another's political commitments, values, beliefs as seriously out of step with what justice calls for. That just strikes me as just one of the natural byproducts, one of the upshots of the kind of political equality that we're invested in as democratic citizens. One of the things it means for us to be political equals is that we get to think our own thoughts and make up our own minds and assess the, the political situation according to our own best lights. And it turns out that that means that serious disagreement, disagreement about really important things is endemic to democracy. It's not a dysfunction of democracy. It's not a failure of, of democracy. It's part of what democracy is. And sustaining democracy is an attempt to address what I think is a real serious but underappreciated problem, which really is the problem that was being pressed in that question I would get. How am I supposed to do it, given the fact that I think the people on the other side of the issue are agents of injustice? And it's interesting because you open up the book with a story on someone who approached you after your talk, putting democracy in its place, which was the same talk that brought us together, the same talk I saw. Can you can you recount that story? Yeah, it was interesting. It really got me thinking. So, um, you know, I gave this public talk. It was a TEDx talk. And right after it, there was a little break in the TED program. And so people were out in the lobby and some gentleman said, you know, I just want to let you know, Professor, <laughs> I agreed with everything you said up there. And I said, oh, great. 
And he said, you know, that was a bit of a surprise. I said, oh, what was surprising? And he said something to the effect of, well, before I came here today, I looked you up online and I saw that you were a professor. And then he paused and said, of philosophy. And so I figured you'd be a Democrat. By the way, I think he profiled you pretty well there. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, <laughs> I, belonged, uh, I belonged to no party, but I figured you'd be a Democrat. I said, oh, okay. I didn't, and you know, I, I, this was, you know, I wasn't trying really to engage this guy uh, uh, in any deep way. And he said, and I figured I was going to have to fight you. I said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you like to talk. You know? yeah. But the, you know, I, I, I've thought about this a lot and just, you know, I wondered, like, what did the fact that he, let's just say correctly, perceived that given my occupation or my, you know, field, you know, my discipline, uh, that he figured that I would be liberal or a Democrat. He figured that he and I would have a lot to disagree about. Okay. But he also figured that we could agree on nothing and that I would be incapable uh, of giving a talk about democracy, not about, it wasn't about sort of partisan politics. It wasn't about democracy, you know, uh, democratic politics that are, that's going on now. It was a talk about um, the nature of democracy as such. And I think he thought that given that he and I had sort of opposing political identities or uh, affiliations, that he and I could not agree or would not agree on what democracy is. And that, that struck me as, a, as, as, a, as an odd condition for two citizens of the same democratic order uh, to find themselves in, that we are, we're both citizens that's how he was able to and saying, I figured you would be a Democrat, you know, <laughs> yeah, people living right now in uh, in in Greece are not Republicans or Democrats, you know, only Americans are Republicans and Democrats in the sense he meant. So he was acknowledging that I was a I was an American, you know, like a but still somehow figured that our disagreement would be total. And that we would not see, each, even though we saw each other as both getting a say in our democracy, I think his attitude was that we would not be able to see each other as both entitled to a say in our democracy because we would be fundamentally at odds about what democracy is. And, and that's that's one of the things you refer to as the the Democrats dilemma or the small D Democrats dilemma, effectively that uh, in order to live in a democracy, we also have to understand that there are people with uh, ideals and opinions that might run contrary to our sense of justice that also have an equal say and potentially can have a greater say than we do. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, 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 the problem that I try to give voice to in the book, which I think is just not it's given kind of short shrift in our political thinking and in, even in political philosophy and democratic theory generally. It's the idea that 
if we think of democracies as think of a democracy as the social aspiration or the project of a self-governing society of political equals, which I defend in the book, I think that's the right way to think of fundamentally what democracy is. It's an ideal of uh, self-government among equals. Once you see democracy as that kind of aspiration or project, two, we might think of them as moral directives, sort of fall out of the idea of political equality. You know, one is pretty familiar. You know, we're, we're, we're constantly thinking of political equality in what we might think of as vertical terms. We are equals before the law. We are not mere subjects of the government. We are not merely the property of our rulers. We are, in a sense, equal to the government because we are, in some sense, the government, right? We are self-governors. We are, and so the government, the office holders, elected officials don't get to simply push us around. They're accountable to us. So that vertical sense of political equality, I think, is pretty familiar and generally well understood. But there's a horizontal sense of equality too, right? If we're political equals, we're not simply political equals in the eyes of our government and the office holders that we elect. We are equals in that sense, but we're also one another's equals. You and I are equals. So that means that just as I'm not a subject of the government in the way that one in a monarchy, one is a subject of the, the, the king or the queen, right? I'm not a subject of the government. Well, by that very same token, I'm not your boss. You're not my subordinate or lackey, right? As a citizen, we are equals. And what that means is that we get to make up our own minds about politics. We get to sort of think things through in our own way. Part of what democratic citizenship involves is an attempt to formulate my own political judgments, to engage in the kind of political advocacy I'm required to engage in, in a way that expresses my recognition that you, my fellow citizen, are not merely a obstacle in the way, are not merely something to be defeated, but you're my equal. You're, you are entitled to an equal say too, even when I think you've got poor political judgment and you're misinformed and your priorities are screwy. The challenge at the, at the core of the book is that these two directives of citizenship, pursue justice and manifest in your political behavior or do acknowledgement of the equality of your fellow citizens, these two things pull apart when the chips are down. That is, when political stakes are high, when we think the issue is urgent, right? It feels to us as if showing that I see you as an equal when we disagree is a concession to you. But you're on the side of you're on the side of injustice. Why should I concede anything to you? And it looks to my allies, let's say. We see this in online spaces a lot, right? When you say, well, wait a minute, you know, let's find out what our critics are, are on about. In online spaces, that's typically heard as a kind of infidelity or disloyalty to your allies, 
And often allies have the attitude and sometimes express it. Yeah, if you think there's another side to the question that we're now engaging in, your chances are you're kind of on that side. I will tell you something. So during the Capitol riot, so the when the Capitol was being stormed, uh, a friend of mine on Twitter po- retweeted someone who criticized the Capitol Police for their, their light-handed treatment of the rioters. And at the time, this was still going on. So at the time, we were all seeing the same information. We were all equally unaware of how this was going to turn out. And so I replied, I said, let's just keep in mind a good day is one where nobody gets shot. That was all I said, effectively. I am still getting hate likes for that because I, first off, Twitter exploded on me. I've never had more people commenting on my post and they all hated me. And I'm, I swear to God, I am still getting alerts on my phone today. This is like nine months later from people who liked somebody dunking on me on Twitter. And what I thought was a fairly innocuous comment about the right of somebody else to not get killed for a nonviolent offense, that was enough to lump me in with the white supremacists and the Proud Boys and everybody else who was part of that crowd. Yeah, and it turns out that there are there's a perfectly good explanation of how of why that so often happens. Uh, there are sort of political and psychological dynamics that explain why that is, you know, when people feel the political issue as urgent and important, what we might call the blunt end of the Democrats' dilemma. The Democrats' dilemma really just is pursuing justice or seeking justice seems to sometimes run, run, run in the opposite direction of treating opponents like my equals. The Democrats' dilemma really just can be framed as, you know, when the chips are down, why treat anybody who's on the wrong side of the question as an equal? Why not just, right, strategize with my allies for the purpose of seeing justice get done? And that could mean working to shut out, shut down, deracinate, dismantle the opposition to treat the opposition as something less than a coalition of people with a entitlement to an equal say. And typically, let me just add, right, when the chips are down and we think things are urgent, it's also the point at which we are most willing, most eager, in a way, to draw the conclusion that if you're not on my side of the issue, you're, a, you're an opponent of democracy as such. That's why I don't owe you uh, any recognition of your political equality. You've divested from democracy because democracy is only for people who agree with me about this issue. That's a questionable attitude. 40% folks. That's the number of people in America who don't identify with either major party, bigger than either of them in terms of voters. 60% is the number of Americans who feel another major party is needed. Both are a signal something's wrong, and both are a signal Americans are looking for something more, and that is why you listen to You Don't Have to Yell. Now, nothing's going to change 
until we open up the two-party system to real political competition. And in the right numbers, we can make this happen. So here are two ways you can help. Number one, if you dig the content on YDHTY and you know someone else who would, please share this show with them. The goal of YDHTY is not just to push for electoral reform, but to get the center back into the conversation. And this podcast grows by word of mouth. Number two, if you want to take action in your state, visit rankthevote.us. It's an organization focused on growing the ranked choice voting movement in all 50 states. And while there are no shortages of ways to reform elections in this country, ranked choice voting is by far the most practical and effective way to make elected officials accountable to the majority of voters, not just the parties. 2020 is going to be a decade of change, and I hope you'll choose to join me in making the change for the better. And now, back to the episode. To kind of go back to the people who hated me on Twitter, in their defense, from what I've, I, I, from, from, from your book, you know, my understanding is that is also part of the democratic process as well. So the, we, again, to kind of echo something you said at the very beginning, we seem to think the ideal is some moderate, well-mannered debate. And, and it sounds to me, in, in your estimation, that that is not part of the process. That's not something that should be the goal or the expectation. That seems right. But let me just sort of qualify it in the way Please, that philosophers yeah. like to do this kind of thing. Bringing people together and unifying and seeing one another as opponents and not enemies. The sort of Joe Biden stuff from the inaugural, you know, I, by the way, is I'm not opposing, I don't oppose it, right? It seems to me like, yeah, if we can get together and sort of hash out our differences in ways that are orderly and reasoned and all the rest, that's great. I, you know, I think that's fine. I just don't think it follows uh, from the desirability of that more reason-driven, calm uh, way of engaging our differences. Uh, the desirability of that more reason-driven and calm model doesn't entail that the heated, the antagonistic, uh, the hostile is somehow a failure of democracy. It seems to me that it's not a failure of democracy. It's precisely what one should expect when political equals are tasked with the project of self-government and because they're equals, they get to think their own thoughts and they disagree. Justice is important, right? Let's not forget that, right? Getting politics right is important normatively, right? And so it's to be expected, it seems to me, that people who disagree about justice are going to have a pretty low opinion of one another and are going to engage in ways that aren't always polite and debate society-like. And I just don't think that that's itself a failure or a dysfunction of democracy. I think it's part of the profile of democracy. I think, too, you know, when I think of something like the abortion debate, for example, where one side feels explicitly and, and or 
one side feels that they are defending the right for some somebody to live. They are defending the right to life. The other side feels that they are defending someone's control over their own body. There is no Venn diagram for those people. They are at opposite ends of those circles. And so they are certainly going to view the other as someone trying to do evil. And there's no way around that. Now, the second part of that, and something I found interesting in your book, is that what mitigates that, it seems, is the idea of the good faith argument. The idea that your opponent, while possibly entirely wrong and entirely contrary to your sense of justice, is still arguing in good faith. You know, the abortion issue is very, very interesting just as a matter of just public opinion research, right? Because when we talk about it, uh, in the way that we were just you were just mentioning it, we cast that debate in terms of competing positions that, as you correctly described them, can have no middle ground. Turns out that very few people in the American uh, populace actually hold either of those positions. <laughs> Leave that aside. Um, I think it's just an important philosophical question to try to explore about democracy. What can be said to the citizen who finds herself confronted with these two directives pulling in opposite directions, who says, I just want to get the right result. And treating you like my equal impedes that. So on justices, you know, Maybe treating you as my equal is really important, but getting the right result, getting the result that best accords with justice, well, that's important too. So when these two things pull apart, why shouldn't I just play to win? And that means playing in a way that doesn't treat you like my equal, treats you like my subordinate, treats you like bad weather or a tsunami, something to be contained, something to be weakened, deracinated, shut down. Why shouldn't I do that? I think it's a, a real important sort of moral question that falls out of the ethics of democratic citizenship. It emerges from, last point on this, it, um, note, it emerges out of citizens trying to take democracy seriously, right? This is not one of these sort of um, dysfunctions or, or troubles that emerge out of people not paying attention or, you know, not, not, not taking their job, not taking their civic duty seriously. The Democrats' dilemma emerges out of sincere attempts to be a responsible democratic citizen. That's why I think it's sort of endemic. It's baked into democracy and we have to confront it. You, we can't theorize it away. It's part of what, demo, it's part of the package of democracy, it seems to me. Yeah. And so I'm sure there are people listening to what you just said and they're thinking to themselves, yeah, well, why do I like, why don't I just treat these people like obstacles? Because they're obviously standing against something that I consider uh, in the name of justice. A couple of points to be made from the beginning. We are the kinds of social and cognitive creatures that are um, vulnerable to certain kinds of social dynamics that affect greatly 
our beliefs, how we understand ourselves, how we get along with others, who we see as allies and foes. And some of those forces are not driven by good reasons and arguments and evidence. Some of them are merely social dynamical forces. Polarization is one of them. So polar, polarization means all kinds of things. The kind of polarization I'm interested in is the cognitive phenomenon by which uh, interactions among like-minded people turns, their, turns them into more extreme versions of themselves. So as we interact with people who uh, are, are all our allies, as we interact within our coalitions with our allies, we all become a little bit more extreme in what we believe, how confident we are in it, and what level of risk we're willing to assume in behavior designed to promote that view. Now, this is purely, you know, social dynamical. It doesn't have to do with, you know, getting better reasons or having, you know, more evidence. So that's why you're more confident. We become more extreme and more confident and more willing to assume risk strictly because the people around us who we see as our allies kind of amp us up. <laughs> it's like what goes on in a stadium uh, uh, on game day, if you're familiar with, you know, what goes on in stadiums on game day, right? So we're subject to these social dynamical forces that make us into more extreme versions of ourselves. As we become more extreme, we start seeing the other side as inscrutable, irrational, benighted, malevolent. We also start seeing the other side as monolithic. So we attribute to them a singular kind of motivation, a singular set of ideas. We lose the capacity to hear them disagreeing with one another. They all sound to us like they're just saying the same stuff. And we see them as threatening and dangerous and the rest. So polarization looks like it sort of erodes our capacity to treat our opponents as our equals. Now, the part of the belief polarization phenomenon that, although it's as well documented as all the other things I've already said, is not commonly focused on, is this. Our more extreme selves are also more conformist. So, the typical story about polarization is about how it makes you, you know, mean to the people who you see uh, as, as your opponents. Okay. But it turns out that as we shift into our more extreme selves, we also, you and I, like we're, let's imagine ourselves in a coalition, as we shift into more extreme versions of Robert and Dan, we become more alike in lots of other ways. So not only do we come to hold views that are more in concert with one another, we do, we also come to be more alike in ways that have to do with how we dress, <laughs> how we pronounce certain kinds of words, uh, lifestyle choices become more similar. So belief polarized groups become more homogeneous across a range of behaviors. And not only that, not only do we become more alike, belief polarized groups become more invested in being alike. We're more committed to our likeness. So, as coalitions belief polarize, not only do they become more extreme, they also become more committed to policing the boundaries between the in-group and the out-group. They become more interested in making sure 
that purported members of the group are authentic members. They become more invested in detecting posers, more committed to purity within the ranks of the coalition. By the way, just think for a minute, right? Think for a minute about Liz Cheney, right? This is what's going, you see this going on in real time right now, right? You know, voting record-wise, stalwart Trumpian, right? Critical of a what everybody in, you know, whatever they say publicly, everybody admits is just a fantasy, right? As groups become more conformist and more hierarchical, they start splintering. They start expelling members. They start casting out supposed posers and, and, and half-hearted members. Um, they shrink. Now, here's a fact about democracy. You want to be an effective, you want an effective political voice in a democracy? You've got to join a choir. You've got to hold it together. You've got to grow it. You can't shrink it. And so it turns out that belief polarization, when it impacts our alliances, has negative, in, negative effects for our own political efficacy. So, so tie it all together now. So, if a citizen says the following, the people on the other side are depraved, they're on the side of injustice, breaking off ties with them, and I'm just going to work with my allies to get the right result, to pursue justice, gives that sort of moral argument for not sustaining but suspending democratic relations with the other side. Here's what I say. You break off democratic relations with your opponents, all of the psychological forces that lead to political dysfunctions vis-a-vis -vis your relations with your opponents, they don't go away. All of those social dynamical and cognitive forces just turn you against your friends. I, I, I get it. I get it. So it, it, it sounds then like the, the real main reason why we engage in democracy and the main reason why we want to allow people who may have thoughts that run contrary to our sense of justice is the fact that even if we eliminate them, even if we shut their voice off, they can't show up to the polls, they can't participate anymore, the enemy just emerges within. Yeah. I, I, there, was a, there was a quote that, that jumped in my head from Mao uh, <laughs> this morning, which is, and I'll paraphrase it, warfare is politics with bloodshed and politics is warfare without, is more or less. And, and I think ultimately, if you want to get to the base level of the purpose of government, it's really at the at the very least, at the very least, it is to remove us from the worry of either being killed or having to kill someone, you know, over over a minor disagreement. It is a it, it's a more it's a it's a more productive way to go about it. No, I think that's right. But let me just say, what, let me emphasize one feature of the view. I don't think when we hear. Uh, uh, the second uh, George Bush a week or so ago, and the nine—I'm sorry—the nine eleven uh, anniversary. If anniversary is the right word, you know, is talking about we need to bring the country together again, and Biden talking about unifying and all the rest. Right? I want to say, look, too much of our account of 
needing to mitigate or address polarization in the country, I think too much of it is focused or fixated even on the other side. Uh, you know, it's too much fixated on, you got to come together even with your enemies. You know, maybe you do have to do that. I just don't think that the argument is strictly an argument about what you owe to your enemies. Now, maybe you do, right? Owe it to your enemies to treat them as your equals, even when you think their political views are terrible. I think that that's roughly true. This argument, the argument of sustaining democracy just says, okay, but even if you doubt that, here's another kind of moral reason that might have a little bit more purchase with you. If you think, dismiss the other side, they're wrong, right? You're like, well, yeah, but when you dismiss the other side, you actually wind up turning your friends into enemies politically. And that looks like something to be avoided. Now, still the question about how you do it, right? There's still the question about how you mitigate these things. And, and, but I just want to emphasize that this is not a, a, a proposal that says, you know, you need to love your enemies. You still get to think that they're enemies, right? On my view. You still get to hate what they say. You still get to think they're demonstrably wrong and depraved and benighted. You can think all of those things. The point of trying to engage with them in a way that respects their equality or acknowledges their status as equal citizens doesn't really have to do with them. It has to do with your allies. You want strong alliances? You need to maintain, you need to sustain democracy with your foes. That's the thesis of the book. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please consider leaving a review. This podcast grows by word of mouth. Now, Bob's book is Sustaining Democracy, What We Owe to the Other Side, and it can be purchased wherever books are bought and sold. I'll also have a link to the show on ydhty.com. Just click the link that says episodes in the upper right-hand corner and ye shall find. So, as Bob said, democracy almost requires that our political opponents appear to be agents of injustice at times. And when we succeed in eliminating those who disagree with us, we merely demand a higher degree of ideological conformity amongst the people we consider our allies, and that turns outliers into perceived agents of injustice, and the circle goes on. Now, history bears this out, as we saw during one-party rule after the Russian Revolution and throughout communist rule in China, and if we look at American politics today, we can see this play out in the level of animosity moderate senators such as Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema have gained with their own party, or the same sentiment Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski had during the Trump era. And I can't help but think that shrinking membership in both major parties has led to that group polarization effect gaining strength and leading to the situation we see right now. And as always, all roads lead to Rome, and in this case, our Rome is the first-past-the-post electoral system. And if we expand the electoral choices, we can improve participation and, ironically, create more enemies, which is a good thing in this specific case. As always, music, 
courtesy of Quellertac, YDHTY's editorial advisor is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Uh, bye-bye.